This morning, I'm not gonna take a text like I normally would, but I do wanna set up just my, my message this morning. I am preaching to our graduates, yes, but my intention is to preach beyond just the graduates that are in the house and to hopefully minister the word of the Lord in a way that it will impact every life of every individual that's under the sound of our voice. It's in this book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. There's an author by the name of Stephen Covey. He presents some key practices, some key uh, habits, what he calls habits or, or practices that he says are common between people who find success in life and ministry and business. He says if you practice these things, then it can lead you to be effective. Stephen Covey presents concepts like this. He says highly effective people are people who are proactive. He said highly effective people are people who think win-win. How can we get a win-win out of this situation? Highly effective people are people who put first things first, all great habits, all things that maybe we could borrow from. But I want to draw from his second habit this morning as Covey presents this idea where he says that highly effective people are people who know how to begin with the end in mind. Effective people are not people who aimlessly wander throughout life with no target destination, but highly effective people are people who can anticipate an expected result, and they can structure every aspect of their lifestyle, their actions, and their attitudes to point them towards that end goal, to point them towards what they are shooting for. So with that in mind, I want to preach just for a few moments here this morning from the subject, with the end in mind. With the end in mind. One more time, would you just lift up your voice? Let's ask the Lord to help us today. God, I thank you for your presence and your power that is so evidently in this room. I thank you, Lord, for the life of every individual who has made Atlanta West Pentecostal Church their home this morning. Whether this is their first time or this is their home church, Lord, I believe that you do nothing on accident, but God, you have divinely appointed today to be a day of destiny. You have divinely appointed that today could be a life-changing day for somebody. I'm asking that your anointing would be with us as it has already in this service through the remainder today, that your word would go forth, Lord, that it would impact and it would change, that your voice would be the loudest loudest voice that is in the room today. We'll give you great praise and we'll give you great glory for it. In the name of Jesus, everybody say amen. And you may be seated. Now before you think that this idea of beginning with the end in mind is nothing more than some self-help or business jargon, I want to at the outset of this message assure you that while Stephen Covey and others like him have made many, many millions of dollars off of this concept, that it is not original to them. But rather, we can find this principle displayed all throughout the pages of Scripture. One such example that we can find is in Luke chapter 14, where Jesus is talking to his disciples about the cost of following after him. It's in verse 26, we find that Jesus is telling his disciples this. He says, if any man will come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this isn't the message today, but it's important for us to understand that Jesus is not using the word hate in the same way that we do today. But rather, Jesus is making a point that it's about weightiness in your life. It's about priority, that if you do not put me above all else, you will not be my disciple. Verse 27, he continues, he says, whoever doth not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. But then Jesus goes into illustrative teaching. He begins to present two illustrations in verse 28. He says, for who of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, 
lest you get into the middle of the building project and you realize that you have flat run out of money and you don't have the means to, to achieve the goal. Now, I find it interesting because he appeals to human nature here. At the end of verse 29, he says, you're not able to finish it. And then all that behold it begin to mock you, saying, this man began to build but was not able to finish it. He gives another illustration in verse 31. He says, what king will go to war without first counting the cost and determining, hey, I've got 10,000 soldiers and they've got 20,000 soldiers. Do you think it's a good idea if we go to battle? So when the king sits down and he begins to weigh the options, if he determines that they don't have a high probability of winning, then it's in his best interest to send an ambassador who would come to a peace agreement before their army gets annihilated and wiped off the face of the planet. Verse 33, Jesus ties all these together when he says, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Believe that what Jesus is suggesting here is that a disciple is somebody who has counted the cost. A disciple is somebody who understands the end goal. They're one that begins with the end in mind and understands that our expected future is worth the cost that I've got to pay today. So it's with this in mind that I want to do something at the outset of this message that I have never done before that I will likely never do with another message for as long as I, I preach here on this earth. And if it doesn't work, I won't even do it at 11 o'clock. Okay? But what I want to do with this idea in mind is I want to preach the conclusion of my message right now. I want you to know where we're going. I want you to understand what my end goal is today. Are you ready? Here we go. Here's the conclusion. Heaven is the goal. Nothing more and nothing less. Heaven is our expected end. No, not for the walls of precious gems or the gates of pearls, and those will certainly be there. Not for the streets of gold so pure that they'll be like transparent glass, and I certainly can't wait to see that. No, it's not for the mansions, and I'll tell you today, I want one on a golf course. It's not even for the fact that there will be no more pain, no suffering, no tears, and yes, that will certainly be nice, but heaven is the end goal for one reason and one reason alone. It's because heaven means an eternity spent in the presence of our Savior. But hear me this morning that heaven will be all the more special if we do not find ourselves there alone, but rather we share the joys of eternity with our family and our friends, with our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Because at the end of it all, if you die not having a cent to your name, but your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, then it will have been worth it all. If you die and you have never amassed a great social media following or great popularity that pales in comparison to others, but you have lived your life in a way where you have influenced somebody to spend an eternity with Jesus Christ, then your living was not for naught and your life was not in vain. Today we must understand that if we are beginning with the end in mind, then the end simply is them before me and him before all because heaven is the goal. There it is. Have a great day. You are dismissed. That's where we're heading today. Heaven is the goal. Now that you know where we're going, let me back up and fill in a few pieces of the story. 
There's another prominent business leader and author and, and speaker. His name is Simon Sinek. Many in this room have probably heard of him. Many years ago, Simon came to claim, he had a claim to fame because he wrote a book and he did this TED Talk that's become one of the most, most viewed TED Talks of all time. And the concept that he presents is this idea of starting with why. It's in this book and it's in this TED Talk that, that Simon Sinek espouses this idea and he presents what he calls the golden circle. I believe we have a picture here. He, he presents this golden circle. You can see the big circle is what, the middle circle is how, and then it's that little circle in the middle that is why. Now, Sinek speaking to business leaders and organizational leaders, what he is going to argue is that every organization on the face of the planet knows what they do. They know what they do. In the case of Apple, they sell computers. They can tell you what they do. He takes it a step further. He says, many organizations can tell you how they do it. This is their system. This is their process. This is the competitive advantage that they have that, that allows them to do what they do and do it well. He said, but it's only a few key organizations that he views to be the most effective and successful that can define why they do what they do that know what their purpose is. This idea of starting with why, the same concept, it can be applied to many business organizations, yes, it can be applied to the church, yes, but it can even be applied to an individual's life. Let me use a quick illustration just to try and make this come to life. So I am, I am the executive pastor at our church. This is a recent development. I've only been in that role for eight years. And I knew this ahead of time, but being in this role, I have quickly realized that one of the chief responsibilities that church leaders have is to train, to develop, to recruit, and to celebrate volunteers. Okay? If the church is going to function, we've got to have incredible people like you who volunteer their time to come and make the church what it is. We can't do this on our own. And so I'm going to put myself in the shoes here at Atlanta West Pentecostal Church. I don't believe you have this issue, but I'm going to, going to present this idea that let's say here at this church, they recognize that we need to add some people to our greeting team. Okay, at the sanctuary, we call it our first impressions team. We've got an incredible team of people that are here on Sundays and Wednesdays to stand at the door, to open the door, to shake hands, and to smile at people. I need to recruit people to join that team. Okay, following Simon Sinek's philosophy, if I'm going into the recruitment process and I'm leading with what, that pitch might sound something like this. Hey, so-and-so, here's the deal. We are desperately in need of greeters. Is there any chance you would be willing to join the team? What I know from experience, what research tells us is it's very likely I could convince a number of you to join the team because you're just good people, because you have a desire to serve your church. Some of you will agree, but it will be out of obligation and guilt. You'll feel bad if somebody asks you and you say no. The people pleaser in you would just die to tell somebody, no, I can't do that. So it's likely I can build a team. But the reality is, is I don't know if I can keep a team if all I have done is tell you what I need you to do. Okay, if I go to that second stage, that how, the, the pitch might sound something like this. So it would be, hey, Colin, is that, that what your name? Congratulations, number one. But I might go on and say, hey, Colin, here's, here's the deal, man. I really need somebody to come early on Sunday to stand at the door, to open the door, to shake people's hands and to smile real big as they walk onto this campus. Now, for some people, this is the exact pitch they want to hear because I have told them exactly what the expectation is. This is how you win. This is how you do the job effectively. This is what's required of you. This is how you do it. You stand at the door, you smile, you shake hands, you welcome people when they step onto the campus. 
But again, I'm not sure if I'm going to keep Colin because I haven't instilled passion inside of him. But what Seneca is going to argue that if I am leading with why, that pitch changes drastically. If I'm leading with why, the pitch may sound something like this. I might say, hey, Colin, we're so grateful you're a member here at Atlanta West Pentecostal Church. You probably know this because you've been around, but our mission at this church is to lead people into life-saving relationship with Jesus Christ and to develop them as followers of him. But here's the deal, Colin. We can't do that unless people decide that Atlanta West Pentecostal Church is a place where they can grow and, and trust us with their spiritual formation. We can't do that unless they trust us with their family. But here's what the research says, Colin. What the research tells us is that the majority of guests who walk onto a church campus decide within the first five minutes of being on that campus whether or not they will come for the second time. What does that mean? That means it's before Brother Johns gets a chance to get in the pulpit. It's before the incredible praise and worship team gets a chance to lead. It's before they get to experience all of our programs and hear us celebrate what God is doing. What that means is that first interaction they have at that door is vitally important to us fulfilling the mission of this church. Would you be willing to join the team and help us reach souls for the kingdom of God? Do you see that? That's a different thing altogether because I haven't just led with what the job is. I haven't just told you how to do the job, but I have introduced something altogether. I have introduced purpose into the equation. And purpose is a game changer. See, for many, purpose is an extreme motivator because people can begin to see themselves as, as a part of something that is bigger than just themselves. Purpose helps us to set the direction of our lives as we point our actions and attitudes towards an expected result. Purpose is the fuel that can keep us moving ahead even when the journey gets a little bit difficult. Purpose can cause me to keep showing up day after day even when I feel like I want to throw in the towel. Purpose is a driving force behind meaningful life and meaningful living. Purpose is a powerful thing. In fact, there was a recent study, two recent studies, where they showed beyond just the understood benefits of purpose, two recent studies showed us that people who have a greater sense of purpose, they have less incidence of cardiovascular disease. They have a lower mortality rate. They experience less loneliness, and they made better lifestyle choices to protect their health. Purpose is powerful. But the problem is that, unfortunately, there are many people who struggle to ever find their purpose in this life. There are many people who find purpose to be elusive. They stumble towards an undefined destination, never certain what their end goal should be, wandering aimlessly throughout their life without a sense of direction and never finding that thing that gives their life meaning. Purpose is powerful. I'm here to remind somebody today that it was never God's intention for you to live a meaningless existence void of all purpose. But God has divinely appointed for you to be a part of his kingdom and to live a life on mission, to live a life on purpose, to live a life of kingdom service that makes an eternal impact. It is his purpose that you would serve his kingdom. We find this all throughout scripture. Verses like Jeremiah 29, 11, he's talking to the prophet. He says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Another translation renders the Hebrew to say, I know the plans I have towards you, says the Lord. They're thoughts, they're plans of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. 
Not an arbitrary, undefinable end. There is an expected end. I've got a call for your life. There is a destination I am driving you toward if you will trust the process in the plan. I've got purpose for your life. We find that the God that we serve is a God of purpose. He is intentional. He is deliberate. He is calculated. He doesn't do anything on accident. He is not surprised by anything. He is an on-time and on-purpose God. You can trust that that type of God has a purpose for your life. Let me talk about him for a second. We see his intentionality all throughout Scripture. But particularly in the creation narrative, we can see the way that God always begins with the end in mind. We find that it's in Genesis chapter 1 that God speaks into chaotic nothingness, the vast void of nothingness, and he says, let there be, and with every utterance of those three words, everything that we know is formed into existence. Let there be, let there be, let there be. There's light, there's firmament, there's stars and sun and moon and animals and plants and even human life itself. God speaks that into existence. What a powerful God we serve. What an omnipotent God we serve. That there is nothing that he cannot do. So it's with this in mind, I find it interesting that when we flip the page to Genesis chapter 2, we read an interesting conclusion to the narrative, the creation narrative. When we find in Genesis chapter 2 verse 1, he says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested. Everybody say rested. He rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had made. God blesses the seventh day. He sanctifies it because that in it he had rested from all the work which he had created and made. Now here's the deal. Considering that in Genesis chapter 1 we're introduced to this all-knowing, omnipresent, omnipotent, all-powerful God who can speak into nothing and, and everything appears. What I think is an interesting question is why is Scripture so intentional to tell us that after the creation process that God rests? This powerful God rests. What I think we have to believe is it's not because God was somehow worn out or tired or exhausted. It couldn't have been that. It's not that he had run out of creative energy or creative juices. It's not even that he needed a time out to reevaluate and calculate what his next steps were. That couldn't be it with the God that we serve. So there has to be something deeper going on here. What we find is when we look at the Hebrew word that's used here for rest, it can be used to mean to cease, to desist from labor, to stop. In other words, Genesis chapter 2 is not implying that God rested in the sense that he was tired, but it's telling us that God rested in the sense that he was done. The work that he set out to accomplish had been completed. The task at hand was accomplished. It's not that he could not have kept going. It's that he met the expected Result. One commentator paints the picture this way. He says, imagine an an artist or a sculptor who sets out to accomplish and to create this masterpiece. He said, there comes a point in every creative process where the sculptor knows if I take one more swing of the hammer against the chisel, if I take one more stroke of the paintbrush against the canvas, then I'm going to risk ruining the thing that I set out to accomplish. That there's a point in the creative process where the artist takes a step back and it's not that they couldn't keep going, but it's that what is sitting in front of them is the exact picture of what they had set out to accomplish in the first place. This is the God that we serve, that from the very beginning, he says, I know what I was going out to accomplish. I began with the end in mind. I knew when it was done. I called it very good. 
It's not that I couldn't have kept going, but I accomplished what I set out to accomplish. We find that this intentionality is never seen more brilliantly than in the creation of humankind. With splendid detail, God intricately created each of us with care and with purpose. I don't know about you, but when we consider the complexity of humanity, I am forced to agree with the psalmist when he said in Psalms 139, 14, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Another translation would say that that means I was made with respect, with awe, and with great intention. Wonderfully is distinctly and uniquely made. And because of that, marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Again, to the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1 verse 5, he says, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified, I consecrated, I separated thee. And I ordained or entrusted or called thee to be a prophet unto the nations, fearfully and wonderfully made. With intentionality and distinction, consecrated and called. This is the God that we serve that made you and that made me. Every detail of DNA divinely woven together to create the masterpiece that is you. There is no assembly line with God. There is no cookie cutter process where he just turns one after the other out. God did not create us on accident, but like an artist who hand makes every single piece, God has created you and he has created me to fulfill divine purpose in the kingdom of God and to bring great pleasure to him, our creator. God created what he set out to accomplish. And he rested in the fact that he knew that it was very good. He met the expected result. If his creation of the world was intentional, then we best understand that his salvation of the same world was even more so. We find that Jesus' purpose was clear long before he ever stepped foot on the earth. It was established from the beginning. Verses like Matthew 1.21 tells us, She shall bring forth the Son. At the outset of this son's life, you need to know you're going to name him Jesus, but there's a very specific reason why. You're going to call him Jesus, not because it's the top name of the decade. You're going to call him Jesus, not because it's trendy. You're going to call him Jesus, not because it's a namesake. You're going to call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus himself describes it this way in John 10, 10. He says, the thief cometh not but for to kill, to steal, and to destroy. But I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Luke 19, 10, he says, the son of man is come to seek and to save the lost. We know this, but in Revelation 13, verse 8, it describes him as the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. What am I saying this morning? I'm saying that his mission was clear from the beginning. His purpose had already been established. He was never willing to leave you in the bondage of your sin. He was never willing to give up on you. Abandoning you was never in the plan. It was never an option. But from the foundation of the world, the cross was always in his mind's eye. It was always within view because he said I love you so much that you're going to fall into sin but the plan to redeem you back and to buy you back is already in process I came to seek and to save the lost the end was always in his mind because we serve a purposeful intentional God so here's my point this morning that if he had that much intentionality behind your creation and he had that much purpose behind your salvation, then you better believe that he's got divine destiny for your life. 
If he had pre-planned this whole thing and knew who you would be and had already made a way for you to enter into salvation, you better believe that God did not somehow write you off and say they're going to have to stumble their way into an unknown future. But God has destiny for every individual that is in this room this morning. He has destiny for you. I think we can look at many examples in Scripture. We can find a little bit of what God says about purpose, what our purpose is. I understand that purpose is nuanced, that purpose can get very specific in the life of an individual, but there are some broad parameters that I think Scripture shows us about the purpose each and every one of us have. One example we can reference is Jesus in Matthew chapter 25. He's talking to his disciples. Jesus was the master storyteller, and so he's sharing a parable, a story about a master who was going away to a foreign country. We know this as the parable of the talents. Before he leaves, he gathers his servants together and he begins to give to them what the scripture says according to their ability, according to their capability. He delivers unto them talents. That word deliver, delivered in the Greek, it means he entrusted to them. He gave them ownership of that. And then he leaves. Bible says to one servant, he gives five talents. To another, he gives two. And to another, he gives one. And then he is off the scene. Now, Scripture is not implicit in this at the beginning of the story. But as we read through the context of the story, I think we have to assume that the master had intention for what the servants would do with what they had been given. Because we find that the one who was given five and the one who was given two, they instantly go and they put these talents to work. They begin to invest them. Each of them double the money that they have. The one with two turns it into four. The one with five turns it into ten. The Bible says that the one that was just given one talent, he goes and digs a hole in the earth and he buries that talent in the ground and covers it up. The master comes back and the day of reckoning approaches. He's taking account of what did you do with what you were given. The two servants that had turned it into ten and turned it into four approach him. And I find this interesting because evidently in the master's mind, it was not about the amount of increase. Because what we find is the one who had four and the one who had ten both get the same exact reward. When the master looks at them and says, well done, my good and faithful servants, because you have been faithful and little, I can trust you with much. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Same reward for four and for ten. But we find that the one with one comes and he presents back to the master exactly what the master had given him in the first place. And evidently, the master is so wroth, he is irate that instead of inviting him into the joy of the Lord, he kicks him out of the house and he curses him to internal, eternal damnation. What does this story tell us? I think there's a couple things. Number one, I think we have to read into this story that in the eyes of the master, evidently breaking even in the kingdom of God is not enough. Simply presenting back to the master what he has presented to us is not his end goal. But the key thing in regards to purpose I think we can grasp from this story is that in the eyes of the master, the job of the servant was to take what they had been given and to multiply it in a way that brought increase to the master's kingdom. It wasn't about their increase. It wasn't, it wasn't about building their kingdom. It was, are you using what I have given you to bring increase to my kingdom? 
You may be sitting in this room today and you're asking the question, I, what is my calling? What is my purpose? I may not be able to give you the specifics, but what I can tell you today is that God is looking for every individual under the sound of my voice to take what he has given you, that gifting, that talent, that ability, the financial resources you may have, and to invest them in a way that brings increase to his kingdom. To our graduates, we're setting out on a new course of life. You're trying to figure out what it looks like. You're determining your major. I'll share a little bit of my story. When I was 17 years old, I graduated high school. I told Brother Johns this morning, my, my goal, what I wanted to do is I wanted to go to Bible college. My parents had gone to Bible college. They met each other in Bible college. It sounded like it was a lot of fun. That's what I wanted to do. They'd go to camps and conferences, and they had so many friends all around the country that they had met in Bible college. I'm like, that sounds like a good time. I want to go to Bible college. When the time came, though, every single trusted voice in my life told me, Caleb, we don't feel like that is the direction that you should go right now. It's not that you might not go in the future, but for today, we don't feel like that's the right voice. So I ended up finding myself applying to several colleges. My second goal was to go to LSU Law School. I got a scholarship to LSU, but it wasn't quite as big as the scholarship I got to Southeastern Louisiana University. I tell the story now, I think the Lord knew that's where I needed to be. He knew I'd get greedy and I'd follow the money. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but I ran after the money and that's where I ended up at college. I, so I go and I end up at Southeastern Louisiana University. Law was off the table at this point, so I'm trying to determine my major. I decided to go into marketing for one reason and one reason alone. It's not because I was incredibly creative. I had never even thought about marketing before. But whenever I was 12 years old, I can remember from the time I was 12 up until that day, I can remember feeling like God had called me to do something. Couldn't have told you what it was. The way I've described it is I remember being in services like this one or sitting at youth camps and the preacher would be preaching and it was like God had reached in and was just grabbing my insides, just, just tugging, Caleb, I'm calling you. Caleb, I'm calling you. Now to this day, I can tell you that I have never had the moment that many people have where they can say I can take you to the place where God called me to be a preacher. I haven't had that. Thankfully, I've heard other preachers who said they didn't have it too, so I feel like I'm okay. But what I did have I had this deep desire in this urging that said, Caleb, I'm going to use you to do something. There was no clarity. So I'm stumbling my way through my teenage years, finding myself a little frustrated because I feel like, God, you called me, but you're not giving me the full picture. So I go into marketing because this was the promise I made. I said, I feel like I'm called by God. I don't know exactly what I'm called to do, but I want to go into a degree that maybe I can use for the church one day, and maybe I can use a marketing degree to benefit the church. Let's do it. At the same time, I was 17 years old. I had started the first semester there. We started a campus ministry on this college. We started meeting in a conference room that was in the second floor of our student union. And what started with the Bible study with one person, by the time I graduated, it turned into weekly services where we had 60 and 70 people that were showing up throughout the course of the week. God did an incredible thing. But here was the problem for me, is I didn't view that as part of my purpose. I didn't. At 17 years old, I wasn't running from the call of God. I was doing what I felt like he was asking me to do. But in my mind, ministry equaled microphone. Ministry equaled pulpit. Ministry equaled some kind of area of meaningful service in the church. And in the church that I went in, or the church that I was in, and it was a large church. At that time, there were no opportunities for me to be a youth pastor. There were no opportunities for me to teach a Sunday school class. There were no opportunities that I said, God, if you've called me, this is what that means. Obviously, 
The call of God means it's got to be some area of ministry that's meaningful and visible within the local church, and that was not there. I found myself frustrated. Until the second Tuesday of July in 2010, it was a Louisiana district camp where the Scott Graham was preaching. And that Tuesday night, he began to tell a story about this couple that he was teaching a Bible study to every Tuesday night. He began to tell the story that this couple was from a biker gang. They had never been in any church whatsoever. They didn't know the first thing about basic Bible stories. They had heard of Jesus, but had no idea what he meant for their life. Every Tuesday night, he'd show up in their house teaching that Bible study, teaching that Bible study. He also said, he said, the church that I pastor, the sanctuary, which my life has come in a weird full circle that I now attend, he said, that church that I pastor, there is an elder in that church that was supposed to die this week. So I had let the board know that there is a chance I'm not going to be able to show up to preach the camp meeting this week. But here's what I understood. He said, what I knew is that if I wasn't able to show up to Louisiana District Camp to preach that Tuesday night, that they would have gotten on the phone and they would have called 100 other people who could have filled that pulpit and done a great job. He said, but in that Tuesday night Bible study, I'm the only one. I'm it. So after he said those words, I, I ran to the altar because God got a hold of me. And as an 18-year-old kid, it was on this side of the platform, I buried my face in the carpet and I began to sob. Begin to sob. As clear as I had ever heard God speak, speak to me in my entire life, I heard him say this, that Caleb, if it wasn't you to fill what you thought was a meaningful position within the local church, within my church, there would be somebody else. That's not always the case, but in my case it was. There will be somebody else. But on your college campus, you are the only one, and that's where I've called you to invest yourself and to go. What I learned through campus ministry is I learned that purpose isn't found on platforms. But purpose is found in people. That's it. Purpose isn't found in microphones in your hand, but purpose is found in people. The musicians can come. I, I think at times we're asking the wrong questions when it comes to calling. Because as young people in particular, but even, even I've talked to people who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s that are trying to figure out what they're called to do, I think at times we're asking the wrong questions. The question we're tempted to ask is, what is my calling? Am I called to preach? Am I called to teach? Am I called to sing? Am I called to be a nurse? Am I called to build? Am I called to design? Am I called? Because here's the deal. Calling is not limited to ministry. I believe that God calls us to different areas of service. But we ask, what am I called to do? Then maybe we begin to think about, well, how do I do that? How do I go about fulfilling that call? We figure I go get an education and I begin to hone my craft and hone my skill when all along I think we've led with the wrong questions. Because at the end of the day, it's not really about what you are called to do. It's not really, and these are important, it's not really about how you're going to accomplish the call. But if we have not settled the issue of why you are called in the first place, we've missed the entire thing. Because calling is not about preaching a sermon that somebody can come and pat you on the back and say you did a good job. That's not it. That's not why. But the why is only about kingdom purpose. It's about him and it's about them. And it's, if it's ever about anything else, we have missed the mark all together. We ask the question, why? Why, Brother Ryan, do you show up week in and week out and you provide this team with excellent worship, this church with excellent? Why do you work so hard? You're incredibly gifted, but why? Why give everything that you have to make this program as great as it is? To those of you who volunteer your time, I believe Brother John said there's three or 400 volunteers that make this church happen. Why? 
Why do you show up early on Wednesday and on Sunday and come and volunteer your time to make Atlanta West what it is today? Why? Why? Why did you just raise $837,002.69? Did I get it right? That was close. Maybe a couple dollars. And commit to over $6.3 million to build a new facility. Is it so that people in this city can pat Atlanta West on the back and say, my God, look at the beautiful edifice that they have. If it is, then we've missed the mark. Because that's not why the purpose is. That's not what the call is about. That's not what using our giftings and talents is about. It's all about how am I using what I have been given to bring increase to the master's kingdom. The why is people. The why is because there are, there are thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of souls that are in this area where you walk into your job and you say, I may not know why I'm working this job. I don't know what brought me in life to this position. Can I tell you it could not be about the money. It might not be about the position. It might not be about the raise and the promotion. It might be because there's somebody on that job that desperately needs you to step fully into your real call and say, my why is not about money, but my why is about people. So when I walk into my job, when I walk into my school, when I walk into my city, I'm living on purpose. I'm figuring out how can I use what I have been given to bring increase to the master's kingdom. Why? Because heaven is our goal. Nothing more and nothing less. Heaven is our expected end. No, not for the walls of precious gems or the gates of pearls, and those will be there. Not for the streets of gold so pure that they'll be like transparent glass, and I certainly can't wait to walk on them. No, not for the mansion that each and every one of us will have, and I'm not lying when I say I want the nicest golf course in heaven. No, not even for the fact that there will be no more pain, no suffering, and no tears, and that will certainly be nice, but heaven is our goal for one reason and one reason alone. It's because heaven means an eternity in the presence of our Savior. Heaven means an eternity around the throne of God where we get to spend eternity in the presence of the one who with intentionality and with purpose designed and created and saved and redeemed us. But what will make heaven all the more special is if we are not there by ourselves. But rather, we get to enjoy the pleasures of eternity with our friends and our families, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, if you die at the end of this life not having a cent to your name, but your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, it will be worth it. If you never have popularity here on this earth and your, your, your popularity and your fame it pales in comparison to others, but you have lived your life in a way that a coworker decides that that's the life I want to live, that a family member decides I'm going to follow you as you follow Christ and they spend an eternity in heaven, your living will not have been for naught and your life will not have been in vain. Because if we are beginning with the end in mind, then our motto is, it's them before me, and it's him before all. Because heaven is the goal. Can we stand all over this place? Right where you are, I wonder if you just close your eyes. Right where you are, I wonder if you would just lift up your voice and you would begin to entertain the presence of God. We're going to open the altar here in just a moment, but I believe that the Lord is speaking purpose back into somebody's life right now. 
But there's some people you've been stumbling around in the dark trying to figure out, you know, I don't really know what this whole thing's about. I can't figure out what God's trying to do with me. I don't know how I ended up here. And I've come on a Sunday morning to tell our graduates, yes, but to tell some 40 or 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 year old that God's got divine purpose on your life. But that purpose isn't so that you can just make a lot of money and have a big name while you are here on this earth. But that purpose is that you would use what you have been given in a way that would bring increase to the master's kingdom. That you would invite somebody on the journey with you. Invite somebody on the journey with you.